Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It's a great blessing that we may be here again to join together in worship of our triune God. A hearty welcome to all who are present here and to all those who have joined us via the live stream. May the preaching of the gospel message direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and cause us to live our lives to the praise of Him. Consistory has the following announcements. Consistory as elders only will meet at 8 p.m. tomorrow, the Lord willing. This week, Friday, the 7th of April, we will commemorate Christ's sacrificial death with the Good Friday worship service commencing at, at 9.30 a.m. Next week, Sunday, the 9th of April, the Lord's Supper will be celebrated in the morning service. And this afternoon, the service will be led by Brother Plater. Before we commence this service, let us sing together Psalm 71, verse 8. Congregation, please rise and let us worship the Lord together. As we come to worship our triune God, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And God greets you this afternoon. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now sing, and let us sing from Psalm Psalm 19, where we praise God for his creative power and also for the law that he gives us. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 3.
in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. So congregation, as those who have the same spirit of faith, let us now speak and confess that faith with the words of him, him one. before God and ask for his blessing over this afternoon's worship service. O Lord God in heaven, you are very great. As we speak, you are sitting on your throne in heaven clothed in splendor and majesty. You are covered with glorious light as with a garment. Father, who are we that we should be able to address you like this? come before you and to speak to you as community. Not only speak to you as our Lord, but also even call you our Father. For Lord, we thank you. We praise you that we have this opportunity, that despite your greatness, you condescend. And you've done so in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came into this world, who walked among us, and who has delivered us. Father, we praise you that you who are so great draw near to those who are so small. We praise you for your power. Father, we look around us and we see the seasons changing once again. In your word, you tell us that it's from your lofty abode in heaven that you, that you water the earth and you satisfy it. You're the one who causes the, the grass to grow and to become green. This week we've seen that. We saw the rains on Thursday and Friday how you watered the earth. And Father, we thank you for that. You renew the, the face of the ground. Everything goes from brown and it goes to a nice green. And thank you for sending your spirit who renews the face of the ground. We pray now that you would send that same spirit who renews the earth, that you would send that spirit as, as you promised long ago. You promised us that you would pour out your spirit, that you would change us, and that you would make us walk in your commandments, that you would remove our hard hearts and replace them with the heart of a flesh, a heart that desires to love you and desires to serve you. And so we pray that you would be in our midst this morning powerfully and that you would work your word in our hearts. Lord, as you renew the grass with your water, renew our hearts with your word through the spirit. Father, may your glory endure forever. May our worship this afternoon be pleasing in your sight as we rejoice in you 
and as we worship you, and as we laud your greatness. Hear us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in connection with our confessional reading this afternoon, which is Lord's Day 2, we're going to read from a few passages from the, the book of Romans. And Romans is one of the most comprehensive expositions of the gospel where Paul works from, he works from guilt, how we are all condemned before God as sinners. And he works through that and he shows how even according to God's law that, we, that there is no one righteous. And then he moves to faith in Jesus Christ and how we can uh, receive the hope of Jesus Christ because of the gospel. And so we'll read two passages. The first one is from Romans 3, Romans 3 verse 9 through to 26, and Romans 7, Romans 7 verse 7 to 25. So in this part, this is specifically where Paul is showing that there is no one righteous, not even the Jew or the Gentile. And so he speaks there in, in Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let us also turn now to Romans 7. Romans 7, and we'll read the verses 7 through 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my, bo- in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So far, the reading of God's law, we will now sing in connection Psalm 69, verses 1 and 10. And in in this psalm, David sings about the hopelessness of his situation, and he looks to God for his salvation and for deliverance. So Psalm 69, and we'll sing verses 1 and 10. confessional reading this afternoon is Lord's Day, Lord's Day 2, and you'll find that on page 518 of the, the Book of Praise. And this begins the section, Our Sin and Misery. So Lord's Day 2, from where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? 
Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. After the preaching of the gospel, as it's summarized here in Lord's Day 2, we'll sing from hymn 28, verses 1, 2, and 3. Dear congregation, greatly loved by our Savior Jesus Christ, in our popular culture around us, it's, it's often typical to hear phrases like, no one knows the real you, or only you know who you really are. Behind that, there is a belief that there is something that is core, that there is something central, a central truth about us that makes up our identity and that defines us. And so the mantra of our society is don't let yourself be defined by you know, the binaries or, or gender or whatever else. Don't be defined by society. Only you can tell who you really are. And so be authentic to yourself. Be true to yourself. And that is something that our world values greatly. If you think about it, that's really the ethic of our time. Just be authentic to who you really are. But to be true to yourself, you have to first actually know yourself. You have to know who you are. And the irony of it all is that many people, when they're asked with this question, they struggle to figure out who they are. And so that, that kind of starts this journey of, of self-discovery. If you just look on the internet, there are various websites that offer all kinds of, of questions just to help you to, to discover who you are. It's all about identity, answering that question, who am I? Who am I really? Now, it's interestingly, the Heidelberg Catechism begins by answering that question, who am I? In Lord's Day 1, the, the Catechism asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer it gives is an identity statement. It says, my only comfort is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to Jesus Christ. Who am I? If you're going to receive comfort, it is because your identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, who saves you. That is the identity for the Christian. This is where our joy is. This is where our hope and our comfort is found in life and in death. But then for us to live and die in, in that comfort, the Catechism tells us that we have to, to know a few things. Firstly, we have to know our guilt. We have to know our sin and misery. Then we have to know our, the, the grace of God. And then we have to know gratitude. What does thankfulness to God for his deliverance look like? And that's, that's the framework of the Catechism in general, as many of you know. And so in this section of the Catechism, the first section, the Catechism is showing us who are we really? It's answering again our identity. Who are we without Christ? If our identity is not in Christ, then, then who are we apart from him? And that is an important question to answer. Because if we fail to answer that question, if we fail to answer, well, well who are we without God, without Christ, then we're not going to look for comfort. Because quite frankly, we might not see the need to even be comforted. We might not see the need for salvation. It's like, as that phrase says, you know, you, you're not going to look for salvation if you don't think you need saving. And so this afternoon, we'll look at the Word of God as it's summarized here in, in Lord's Day 2 with this theme. If you want to know the comfort of the gospel, you need to know who you really are without Christ. So firstly, we'll look at the gift of God's law, and then we'll, we'll look at what God requires of us. And finally, we'll look at, as we look in the face of the law, in the, the mirror of God's law, we see our condemnation. So firstly, how do we experience joy and comfort in Christ? 
Well, firstly, it's by realizing that without him we are sinners. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they fell. They fell into sin. And in that act, they, they sent all of humanity into hopelessness. Our nature is now depraved. The original German that's behind the catechism where it says your sins and misery, it speaks of alienation, it speaks of exile, it speaks of the severing of a relationship. And so what it means, so instead of there being harmony, instead of there being love, which is what God created us for, there is now this this wall of hostility, to use the words of Ephesians. That the non-Christian, someone who doesn't believe, who is outside of Christ, well, there are people who are alienated from God. They are strangers of the promise that he gives in his word and they have no hope and they're without God in the world. And what is more, because of of that situation, because of this is who they are now, they're subject to the eternal condemnation of God. They deserve to be rejected by him. They deserve to experience his punishment. That's what Paul's doing in Romans 3. He's trying to show, without God, without Christ, you are doomed to destruction. Every single one of us, regardless of our background, we're doomed to destruction. And yet the misery of it all gets worse. Because if you you just think of what is a life of sin, what does it look like? Well, the Bible paints this picture that the life of sin is just sheer tyranny. It's slavery. Sin is something that spreads its, its coils around us and it easily entangles us, as it says in Hebrews 12, verse 1. And then if we think back again to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, there in Genesis 4, God comes to Cain and he warns Cain and he says, he says to him, be careful because sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, to enslave you. Or if you think of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his ministry he said, you know, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And that's exactly the picture that Paul again uses later on in in the book of Romans. It comes through in chapter 6 and also in chapter 7. So in uh, in 6 verse 6, Paul speaks about that old self, the, the self that has been crucified. So it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And then it says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So without Christ, we're slaves to sin. And then he continues in verse 19 and he says, before our conversion, before our conversion, that we are people who presented ourselves as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, leading to even more lawlessness. And that continues in in chapter 7. Paul, in chapter 7 here, he describes life without Christ, or life as a a non-Christian. And how, even though with the law, he describes it as slavery to sin. Verse 14, for we know that that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh. And then he says, sold under sin. And what he actually says there is sold as a slave to sin. To dwell in sinfulness is to live in tyranny. It's to live in slavery. But then the problem with fallen man is that we don't see our sinfulness as slavery, but rather as freedom. You see, it's one thing to be a slave, to live as a slave, and to realize it. To realize that you're subject to the whims of others, that you're subject, and that you have no say, no agency No determination. Now, sometimes we may think we're free, but the Bible says that if you're outside of Christ, that the natural man, the the fallen man, that he is one who is enslaved. And so it's one thing to think that, to, to be a slave and to realize it. It's quite another to be a slave and to think that you're free. And that's the misery of fallen man. We're slaves. Subject to the just penalty of God. The wrath of God falls on us. But we believe that we're free. That we're okay. And so in answering the question, so from where do you know your sin and misery? Well, it's not going to come from us. It's not going to come from fallen man. Fallen man's not going to realize that. Rather, that knowledge has to come elsewhere because we are so blind, we're like a fish in water. That's all we breathe. 
We see our tyranny as freedom, and then we see God's law as slavery. We're like those, we're like those Israelites. They look back on Egypt with fondness. They thought of their slavery, and they thought of the cucumbers, the leeks, and the melons. They thought it was freedom. And so where does the knowledge come from? Where does our knowledge of sin and misery? Well, it says there, from the law of God. Brothers and sisters, because in man's fallenness, because of sin, he is not going to realize his need for deliverance and his need for salvation. And so God in his, his grace, he gives us the law. He gives us the law as a mirror so that we see ourselves for who we really are. It's through the law, Paul says, that we come to know sin. He said that in Romans 3, we read it together, Romans 3.20. He says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And again, he says it in chapter 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law did not say, you shall not covet. And he said, so through the law, we come, on, we come to understand sin for what it really is. Sin shows its true colors when we see it according to God's law. Through the law, sin is shown to be just that, sin. This is what Paul again says in verse 13. He says, did that which is good, so he's talking about the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now that might sound fairly cryptic. And so what he's saying there, he's saying, so God's law, it is perfect, it's righteous, it's holy. He says that later. And when you look at God's law, which is righteous and perfect, even though if you see that it's good and that you want to do it, you're still a slave to sin because you don't do it. And then when you look in that, you see what God really desires of us what God requires of us, and you look into that perfect mirror and then you see your sinfulness and you see your condemnation and you see your sin for what it is, sin against God, against his majesty. You see its power. And so sin becomes what it really is. You see it as something utterly sinful. We see our wretchedness before God. And we'll come to that uh, we'll come back to that later in the sermon. And so one of the amazing gifts that God gives to us is his law. You have sinners in their brokenness, in their fallen state, and God doesn't just leave them wallowing, groping in the dark, but rather he gives them the law to show them their need, to, to bring them to conviction, to realize that I need a savior, that I need deliverance. To make them seek something that they otherwise wouldn't seek at all, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters, is this your experience when you, when you look at the law? This morning you, you heard it once again. You saw the law, that perfect mirror, and you saw your failings. And so what was that like for you? Did you see that and were you grateful for the fact that it brought your sin in front of you so that you saw your sin for what it was? Or rather, do you hear the law sometimes and you get frustrated and annoyed as though God has just beaten you over the head with everything that you've done wrong? You see, this is a question that Paul is answering. So, because at, in Paul's day, some were accusing him of saying that the law is a bad thing. And Paul says the exact opposite. No, it's a beautiful thing. He says there in verse 7, what shall we say, that the law is sin? No way, he says, get, just get rid of that thought. The law is good. He says we need the law, because without the law, we're not going to see ourselves for who we really are. We're not going to see ourselves as sinners in need of grace. So God gives us the law so that we see ourselves and so that we cry out for the gospel. He does it to drive us to our knees to seek Jesus, our Savior. Now, in order to convict us of sin and to direct our hearts to the cross of Christ, the Spirit uses God's perfect requirements in the law. And so we'll just look at that briefly in the second point, the, re the requirements of God's law. So what does God's law require of us? 
In answer to this question, the Catechism quotes the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice, congregation, that it's Christ who teaches us the law. You would think that it would be the law as it's revealed in the Old Testament, those ten, ten commandments. But it's Christ who teaches us. So God is the one who gives the law to sinners. And then Christ is the one who teaches the requirements of the law. And then so that we might be driven to Christ. Do you see that? So Christ is the one who fulfilled the law. He was the one who was completely perfect. He lived in obedience to the law. And he's the one who teaches us the law so that we see our utter need for him. So that we look to him. That we look to him for, safe, uh, for salvation. It's important that we don't miss that detail because it's another amazing example of God's grace. God gives us the law and then Christ teaches us the law to drive us to our knees so that we seek our salvation in him. And what does Christ teach us? Well, the answer is very simple. It is love. If you want to boil down the Christian ethic, it is love. Love God and love your neighbor. And as many of you know, that's not a radically new ethic that is put forward in the New Testament. Because sometimes there's this false contrast that you have the God of the Old Testament. He is the one who gives all these laws. He is hard. He is a judge. He is capricious. And then the God of the New Testament, he's a God who is love. He is gentle. He is lowly. And so the God of the Old Testament, he's legalistic. He just gives us all these laws. And then the God of the New Testament, he's the God of love, of grace. Well, that just isn't true. Jesus, when he summarizes the law and answers the question, you know, what is the greatest commandment? He's summarizing the law, but he's not doing something new there. He wasn't abolishing it. He's not chopping it into different bits and pieces. But rather, he's echoing the holy desire of God. And we see that in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, God shows he gives the law. And there he tells us that he gives the law so that we might love. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, God, uh, God commands his people through Moses. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So that's the first part, love God. And then in Leviticus 19 verse 18, God commands his people to love your neighbor as yourself. So all of those 613 laws of the Mosaic Covenant, all those laws, those laws about worship, those laws about sexuality, about clean and unclean, about business dealings, about safety, all those different laws can be boiled down to love God and love your neighbor. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. So God requires us to love him and to love each other. And it's interesting that, that Jesus doesn't boil it down to one. Just love God. Because if you think about it, you can't love your neighbor unless you love God. And you can't tell that someone loves God unless they love their neighbor. As John says, you know, how can you say that you love God, someone who you haven't seen, and then hate your neighbor? And so we see that it's love for God and love for our neighbor. And so that is what God requires of us in his law. And so what happens, what happens, congregation, when you, when you look into that law? So God says, love me, desire me, enjoy me, and love each other. And you look into that mirror, and what's, what's the answer? Who are you apart from Christ? Well, the answer is very humbling. We are condemned sinners, totally incapable of doing what is good, totally incapable of doing what God requires of us. Now, congregation, when I was writing this sermon, it was kind of hard because it's very easy for us to just become used to those terminology, isn't it? That apart from Jesus, we're wretched, that we're condemned. And sometimes we fail to see who we really are without God, without Christ. You know, they just become these theological terms that we use in church and that we use in catechism. But sometimes we, we fail to see who we really are. And isn't it interesting that the catechism doesn't just give us a full list of the Ten Commandments in the third answer there, I mean in the second part. 
you would think that it would be appropriate for, for the, the catechism to give all those laws so that you, know, you hold up ten laws and then you'll see that I fell there, I fell there, I fell there, I fell there. And so that we'd see the horror of our sin and the horror of our misery. And again, we think that because we're assuming too much of ourselves. We're assuming that we're better than we really are. And so that's why the answer is humbling. It doesn't take 613 laws to show that we are sinners in need of God. It doesn't take 10 laws to show that we're in need of Christ. It takes two. Can you just love God and love your neighbor? Do you do that perfectly? And that answer is humbling. God says, love me. Love your neighbor. And we look in that law and we see that we don't love him and that we don't love our neighbor. We see our sinfulness. You see, can we keep the commandments perfectly? It's a very intentional question. And it says, I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And we might think to ourselves, well, of course, if you say it like that, are you, are you capable of keeping the law perfectly? Well, no one's perfect. But the catechism is saying something far deeper. Our fallen condition is not simply that, you know, you have God's measurement and then we just don't quite measure up. Or that we, you know, slightly go off target. No, the catechism is saying, here's God's law, we do the very opposite. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're inclined to hate him, not to love him. We're inclined to hate our neighbor, not to love our neighbor. And maybe just to to illustrate this further, maybe you've heard of the explanation of sin as as missing the mark. So that's a a word that comes in the Old Testament. It's in the original uh, languages there. And it's a word from, from archery, the world of archery. So it describes missing a bullseye. Now the Bible doesn't only use this word to describe sin. And there's a reason for that. Because sin is not simply that you just miss the target or that instead of hitting the bullseye, you hit just next to it or that you actually shot completely out to the side. Rather, sin is the fact that we take that arrow and we shoot it up at God out of hatred for him. By nature, the catechism is saying, in our fallenness, we push up our noses at God. We scoff at him. We don't want to do what he says. But we run towards evil and we flee righteousness. The law condemns us not simply because we, we fail to do what God loves, but it condemns us because we delight to do what God hates. Luther put it quite powerfully before his conversion. Someone asked him, do you love God? And he said, love God? Sometimes I hate him. And that's exactly what the catechism is getting at. What is fallen man's identity apart from Christ that's where we are in the catechism our sinful uh, sin and misery who are we without Jesus what is our identity when we look into God's law we are sinners in need of desperate grace in need of desperate change and yet the thing is it's not as though that God can just give us the law and say here you go here are my commandments Because that law will not lead to life but death. And this is what Paul highlights in chapter 7. We can't just take the perfect law and and climb up those ten rungs or climb up the two rungs even to get to salvation. That's what Paul points out in Romans 7. He's saying, yes, the law is good, the law is holy, the law is righteous. But notice he's he's speaking here about his life as a non-Christian under the Mosaic law. He says there, It was death to me. It didn't lead to life, but death. What happened? Sin set up a base of operations in the law. Just think of for yourself. What happens when someone says, so maybe you're free to do something, and then someone says, don't do it. And then you think to yourself, well, I really want to do it. I want to go off and do it. And that's what Paul's saying. What happens is sin takes hold of the law, and and it empowers us. To, to uh, sin against God. And what happens is because of our slavery, the slavery of indwelling sin, outside of Christ, we can't resist the power. Even Paul says, even when I w- know what I want to do, I still don't do it. I am, I'm unable to do what God requires. 
See, what Paul is doing, he's essentially taking the best of the best of the non-Christian world, which is the Jew who loves the law, and he says, okay, let's take that and let's see, how are we without Christ? Do we need him? And he says the answer is a resounding yes. For there is no distinction. All have, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may have the desire to do what is right, but outside of Christ, because of the unbroken power of sin, you can't carry it out. And so even if fallen man wanted to do the requirements, wanted to love, he can't because of the power of sin. And so that God's law is good, it's perfect. But because of sin's power, it becomes death to him. And so it's, it's at this point that Paul just cries out and he says, O wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me? Who is going to save me from this body of death? And when he says body of death, he's not saying that the body is some sort of prison that you have to be rid of and free of. What he's saying is that who's going to deliver me from my fallen brokenness apart from Jesus? Who's going to save me from my condemnation? And then he says, thanks be to God who gives us Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God because apart from him, I will not be saved. He bursts forth with this, this, gospel, this gospel hope. And what he's doing there, he's anticipating what he's going to talk about in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is where he really expounds the gospel in all its beauty. He's anticipating the fact that the, the, the glorious truth that Christ entered into the misery, the hopelessness of our situation. And he took our misery, our sin on ourselves. He takes that glorious truth of the one who lived perfectly. Who loved God with all his heart and yet was condemned as a God-hater who took the punishment that we deserve. And that is that same gospel that Paul is anticipating here, that the catechism is anticipating. Here we are in Lord's Day 2, but it wants us still to think about what comes further up, of that perfect mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It wants us to cry out for the gospel as we see our sin and as we see our brokenness, so that we may be humble before him and receive the salvation of Christ. And that we may die and live in the joy and the comfort of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, if you want to know who you really, if you want to know the comfort, comfort of the gospel, you need to understand who you really are apart from Jesus. Not who you want to be or who you think you are, but who you really are. You are a sinner in desperate need of grace. And what God in His grace does is He sees you in your misery and He gives you the law to show you your brokenness, to show you your sin, to show your abject need for Him. So that you would be driven to seek Christ, to seek your salvation in Him. And so who will deliver you from the body of death? Who will deliver you from your wretchedness? Well, the Catechism saves that answer for another Lord's Day, but we know the answer. It's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God who gave him up for us all. Amen. Let's now sing in response to the gospel hymn 28 verses 1, 2, and 3.
Let us come before God in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not turn a blind eye on your fallen creation. When Adam and Eve hid from you because of their sin, you did not walk away, but you pursued them. You said, where are you? And that is a question that leads to relationship, that leads to healing. Father, you saw our rebellion and our misery. You saw what difficulty this creates in our lives. And in your grace, you gave us your law so that we may be brought under a conviction of sin, that we would see our sin for what it is, that we'd see it as a sin, as something heinous before you and, and liable for judgment. Lord, without you, how lost is our condition. And so please help us to truly understand our misery so that we may marvel at your grace. For Lord, it's when we see our wretchedness that the gospel becomes sweet music for us. Lord, we thank you for sending your son who obeyed your law perfectly and in our place. And thank you that despite the fact that Jesus loved you with every fiber of his humanity, that he took the place of sinners who hated you. Thanks be to your name, because you deliver us in Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would bless our church. I want to bring before you particularly the men and the women here, this congregation. Think of the men, Lord. We, we live in a congregation where, I mean, a, we live in a world where there's so many conflict, conflicting views on what true masculinity is, what it truly means to be a man. Lord, please work in the old men and the young men of this congregation that we would be the men who reflect the true man, Christ Jesus. That we may be people who are respectable, people of conviction, but who are tempered by gentleness and by humility and by compassion. Help us to be mature, mature in faith, who courageously fulfill our responsibilities, whether that's in the home or in the church or in the workplace or wherever, wherever you place us. Father, may we be people who walk and step with the Spirit and not resist His work. Father, help us to also be pure and holy in our dealings with, with women, the women around us. May the women in our lives thrive and may they flourish and may they shine. And Lord, if we are fathers or father figures in the church, give us much wisdom and compassion. Help us to protect our family or the church family. May we make it a place where your word is central and where your way is followed. And Father, we thank you for the faithful old and young women in our congregation who make up this body. Thank you for the many gifts that you give them. May the women too be people of great faith who love their Savior. Fill them with a heart of service that they care and, and they nurture the family of God as life givers. Whether that's as a mother to their children or as a teacher to their students or as a mentor to young women around them or someone in a workplace. Please bless them. Bless them with great friendships and great relationships. And if they are homemakers, bless them in that. May you give them eyes for, the gospel, for gospel opportunities so that they, together with their husbands, may be able to equip the next generation that they would love you and that they would fear you. And Father, may we all together walk in the fruits of the Spirit. Fill our church with, with love, with joy. May it be a, a place of peace. That we be a people of patience, who are not quick-tempered, who are quick to be irritable with one another, but that we are patient, that we are kind, that we are full of goodness, full of faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, ultimately, that we be a people who reflect our Savior and reflect our Lord. And Father, in this regard, we also pray for the mission work that is done in P&G. We thank you that we have an opportunity to, to give of our thanks offerings in just a moment. Lord, we pray that you'd bless that work. Be with the men who are there and the, the families that are there on the mission field. We think particularly of Reverend Paul and, and Reverend DeYoung. Bless them in their work. Lord, there's so much need for the gospel. And we pray that uh, this world which is covered in darkness may be able to see the light that your word would shine forth and that many would see the salvation of Jesus Christ. Father, please receive our worship 
May it be sweet-smelling aroma before you. And may you bless us as we enjoy fellowship together and as we enjoy the rest of this day of worship. Lord, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You now have an opportunity to give of your offerings. And it's at this point that you're welcome to give of your offerings for the mission work that is done in PNG. And then afterwards, we'll sing from hymn 28. And it says there in the, in the liturgy 4, 5, and 6, but we should just sing 7 as well. So 4, 5, 6, and 7.
Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.